rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One is offered as a podcast at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. And of course, here on RTE Radio One on Sunday nights. In 2006, Drama on One broadcast its series Seven Deadly Sins with plays from Anne Enright, Rebecca Miller, Edna O'Brien, Jennifer Johnston, Bernard Farrell, Maura Vakanthi and Eugene O'Brien. Tonight's play is by the American filmmaker and novelist Rebecca Miller and inspired by the sin of covetousness. And just to note that the programme contains adult themes and elements that listeners might find challenging. The play, entitled Mrs Covet, is performed by Julianne Moore, with an introduction by the author. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust and envy. Seven. Kevin Reynolds called me up and said that RTE Radio was doing a series of stories on the seven deadly sins and would I take on covetousness? And when I first thought about covetousness, I drew a blank because unlike lust and greed, I I didn't immediately think of a storyline. So there was a line which went like this, it started with the ladybugs. And ladybugs in America are uh, ladybirds here. So I had experienced somewhat of an invasion of ladybugs um, a couple of years ago, and I kept that line kept dogging me. It started with the ladybugs, but I didn't know what started with the ladybugs. And so when I sat down to write this story, I wrote down it started with the ladybugs. And gradually this character that had been kind of shadowing me of uh, Daphne, the stay-at-home mom who's just going through a period of some confusion in her life, started to emerge and solidify. And then, well, and then Mrs. Covet arrived and, 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 and I was saved. When it came time to think about who might perform this piece, um, I immediately thought about my friend Julianne Moore and I I emailed her the story, and she liked it very much, and I was very happy that she would do it. So here it is. It started with the ladybugs. The first one was a taste of luck on a spring day as I folded towels in the kids' bathroom. A shiny little bubble moved clumsily up the mirror, seemed actually to waddle in her red armor with its cheerful yellow spots. Ladybug, ladybug, fly away home. Your children are crying. Your house is on fire. What's lucky about that? I leaned over and put my finger up to her as she crawled up on it. I wondered, are you supposed to make a wish? Tyler walked in then, eyes puffy from his nap, and pulled down his pants for a pee, utterly unaware of my presence. I watched him, the ladybug balanced on my fingertip, as the manly stream of yellow piss thundered down into the bowl. He pulled his pants up and turned toward the door. What about your hands, I said. He turned to me and smiled, only mildly surprised to see me there, then held his chubby hands out for me to wash. I am as ubiquitous as air in this house for my children. Often they take as much notice of me as if I were a breeze filtering through the screen door. (laughs) 
This doesn't sound too good, I know, but I take pride in it. My kids trust me. They know I'll be there. Tyler went back into his room. I heard him starting to build an airport. His older brother, Kyle, was still in school. It was 2.30, and I figured I had time for a quick orgasm before school let out. So I went into our bedroom, slipped under the covers of the unmade bed, and took off my pants. Un petit mot. That's what the French call it. A little death. It is like dying, isn't it? The open mouth, the closed eyes. How you go out of time for a few seconds? You're nowhere. It's impossible to feel fear while you're coming. I wouldn't care if there were a shark charging at me through the surf. Actual physical sex seems so clumsy and awkward to me these days. My own nudity seems rubbery, numb, this swollen belly and thin, weak limbs, rough shock of pubic hair. Sex works much more smoothly in my mind. I never think of anyone but my husband, of course. That would be a real betrayal. I haven't ever been unfaithful to Craig, and I wouldn't. I always turn him into a stranger, though, when I do it. Some guy I meet in a bar or a library. He looks over at me, and he just can't help being excited by my huge butt, which I actually do not have. So I do kind of secretly understand those gay men who say they just love to make it with strangers. I mean, I would never have the courage personally to go pick up someone I hadn't been introduced to and probably wouldn't even like it if it were real. Or maybe I would. But you know how some people are so disgusted with the idea of certain gay men and how they used to have sex with strangers before AIDS? Who knows? Maybe they still do, but not all of them do. In fact, the most solid couple I know, aside from me and Craig, are both men. Larry and Dennis, we had them over for dinner last week. They wouldn't dream of picking up a stranger. I am totally non-homophobic, except, of course, when it comes to my sons, where it does make me mildly nervous, the idea of them being queers. But they're not, I don't think. It's probably too early to tell, though you think I'd have an intuition. Anyway, the point is, I think there is something sort of heartbreaking about sex with strangers. But at the same time, I believe absolutely in fidelity, because I just can't stand hurting people, and I can't stand being hurt. I never wanted a dog even as a kid, because dogs die after 10 or 13 years at the most, and then you have to live through that loss again and again with every dog. They make you love them. They practically become a person to you, and then they die. Or they get so sick, you actually have to have them killed. We had a dog when I was a little girl, a collie. Her name was Folly. Folly the collie, and one day when she was old, she got frozen to the ice outside. She couldn't get up anymore. It didn't help warming her up. Her legs had gone she looked at us helplessly, and my dad and I took her to the vet, and I held her while they gave her the injection, and she peeked up at me with a worried, obedient expression. She knew that I was going to kill her, and she didn't understand why. And then I was supposed to leave the room, or maybe I was scared to stay. I left Folly alone to die, so that was pretty terrible. And I have resisted getting my own boy's pets for this reason. The price for love, we all know, is eventually loss, and it's a stiff price, let me tell you. Romantic movies and books are waging a perpetual ad campaign trying to get us all to love with unbridled passion. Love, they say. Love. Love more. Abandon all precaution. Stop being so defensive. Feeling a chill in your marriage? Get a divorce. Marry the repairman. I haven't noticed any of the authors of these propaganda pieces putting their home phone numbers inside their book jackets or in the end credits of their films so that we can call them and we have to go to the hospital and watch the people we have loved with such abandon die. They offer no help as we witness our husbands, wives, parents, children turn blue and green and crumple up like an old balloon. I haven't noticed them offering to put away the garments of the dead or those who have abandoned us for others. 
Where are these artists when we need them? Do they offer us any condolence whatsoever? No, because they don't care about us. They don't even think about us. They feed off our yearning to be loved as totally as when we are at our mother's tit. They grow rich off our pathetic need to be happy as embryos, bathed in the warm bath of our mother's blood. About a week after I saw the first ladybug, I noticed there were five of them in the boys' bathroom. Two in the sink, one in the bathtub, two crawling around in the mirror. Days after that, I was reading Tyler a story in his bed when one of them dropped onto my cheek. It panicked me. I shrieked. I never knew they could fly. They land clumsily, stupidly, and when it's time to take off, they push a little secret pair of wings out from under their shelves in the back. Within a month, I had counted 35 ladybugs in the boys' bathroom alone. And then I started finding them in the bedrooms, our bathroom, closets... They were flying more and more, and one day one of them was zooming around in crazy circles and bit me in the back of the leg. It was an invasion. I started to think they were evil. But you can't kill a ladybug. It's terrible luck to kill a ladybug. I started spending more and more time out of the house. Once I dropped the boys at school, I stayed out and got a cup of decaf, went food shopping, even went to a matinee a couple of times. Then I would pick up Tyler at nursery school, and we'd go out to an early lunch. The house was becoming a mess. Orange peels under the bed, grime in the toilet bowl. Craig tried to be nice about it. He knows how I get when I'm pregnant. It's hard to describe what happens. It's as though all the walls in my mind slide down like car windows and the thoughts just float freely around in my brain. I find socks in the freezer, notebooks in the linen closet. But the ladybugs were threatening to be a real problem. I couldn't sleep anymore. I didn't want to be in the house. I wouldn't let Craig get an exterminator. One night, we were sitting at the kitchen table after dinner. Craig watched as one of the creatures crawled along the edge of a bowl filled with coagulating breakfast cereal. Then he said, If you need help with the house, I'll get you someone. I'll ask my mother. I burst into tears. I'm not sure if it was relief or premonition. The very next day at 9 a.m., my mother-in-law, Carol Rice, drove up in her Ford Impala. She was in baby blue, iron slacks, matching blue sweater with shoulder pads in it. Her white blonde hair had even taken on a bluish cast. Still in Craig's pajamas, I watched her through the window, my belly pressing against the glass as she got out of the car, primly brushing imaginary crumbs from her bust and walked round to the other side. The passenger door opened with ominous slowness. I saw one hand grip the side of the doorframe. A dark head appeared and then swung out of view. A moment passed. Suddenly, an enormous woman heaved herself out of the low car and unfolded herself with difficulty. She must have been six feet tall. Short, dark hair, athletic build, breasts the size of watermelons. Carol came up to her shoulder. The two of them strode up to the house. Carol opened the door with a perfunctory knock, calling out, Daphne, in her high sing-song voice. Hi, Carol, I said. My underarms were sweating, my teeth were unbrushed, my hair snarled. Carol looked me up and down and sighed. She'd had six kids, and I doubt she'd let herself look like this for one single morning. Honey, this is Nat. She's going to get your life in order. The enormous woman towered over me. Her eyes were a light, piercing green. Her massive chin seemed clamped onto the rest of her face by a fierce underbite. She was wearing a vast pink terrycloth sweatsuit. I hear you need a little help with the house, she said. 
Well, I said I um, I I I think I do. Um, we thought we'd try. You sit tight, honey. Nat said. You don't look too good. I'm a trained nurse, so calm down. I sat. Carol looked at me smugly. I am so glad you finally let me help you. She whispered. Nat made us both tea and then set about cleaning the kitchen, whistling loudly with vibrato. After a while, she thundered upstairs and turned the radio on. I never even showed her around the house. She figured it all out for herself. Later, drying myself off from my shower, I could hear the sermon she was listening to. A man's voice was saying, But the question is not what you need. The question is, what does Jesus need? And the answer is easy, because the answer is always the same. Jesus needs your love. By the time I had emerged from my room, Nat had found a place for everything in the house. Anything that could fit inside another thing got crammed in there. It didn't matter if it made no sense. She put hair elastics inside egg cups, magic markers, and the salad bowl. The place looked immaculate, but a lot of things went missing. After a while, I began to suspect that Nat was killing the ladybugs. There were fewer and fewer of them around. Once I found 20 dead bodies on a windowsill. I sniffed, but I couldn't smell chemicals. Why were they dying? It's the end of their season, said Nat, but still I suspected her. So many ladybugs ought to have brought something hugely lucky to our lives. Killing them could bring calamity. I started to fret, and whenever I hadn't felt the baby move for more than an hour, I poked it till it squirmed. Nat cooked, too. The fare was plain, fairly tasteless, but the kids loved it. Lasagna, spaghetti with meatballs, fried fish, baked beans... After she was done with the cleaning on that first day at around one, I expected her to leave, but all she did was put on an apron and start chopping. When the kids were home, she had them doing chores. Tyler walked around with a cleaning rag hanging from his belt, a sponge in one hand. Both boys loved working for Nat. She combed their tousled hair, tamed the curls I loved, and slicked them back with water. She started talking about buzz cuts. With the house cleaned, the kids occupied, dinner in the oven, all I had to do was read and wait for Craig to come home. I spent more and more time in my room. Nat fussed over me. In bed ten minutes, I'd hear a knock on the door, see her giant silhouette framed by the doorway. You hungry? I ate three meals a day, plus egg sandwiches at eleven, a bowl of beans at four. I gained fifteen pounds in a month. My doctor was astounded and relieved that I was up to a normal weight. I didn't tell him that I barely ever walked, ate all day, rarely saw my children. Nat was turning me into an invalid, and I was beginning to realize that Carol thought I'd been one all along. Hiding in the hall one night, I heard her talking to Craig in her rough whisper. I tell you, Nat has saved you, saved you all. Wasn't that bad, Ma? Craig's cracked voice, always conciliatory, always making less of things, always talking women down. Wasn't that bad? You're like one of those frogs. If you put a frog in cold water and heat it slowly, it won't notice. But before you know it, you have a boiled frog. I get it. Admit the house is running better. Absolutely, and I thank you. She needed this, Craig. I know. She's fragile. She's been under stress. She's fine. They moved away at that point, and I couldn't hear, but two days later, Craig started talking about therapy. God, forgive the mother of my husband. One afternoon, with nothing else to do, I took off my dress and looked into the mirror. My hips and thighs had puffed up thanks to Nat's forced feedings. My belly stuck out, but my arms and legs were still skinny. I looked like someone had started to blow me up, but stopped before my limbs were fully inflated. 
There was a dark line drawn down the center of my torso as if by a Chinese brush. It traveled from beneath my breasts all the way to my pubis, bifurcating my belly as if marking me for some operation. The linea negra. How strange pregnancy is. I still can't get over it. To house a baby inside makes me feel anonymous, animal. That day, as I stood in front of the mirror, I felt the most intense need to meet this baby. I suddenly had to see its face, this blankness, this image of me I saw covering up my child. I wanted to claw it away like clay. I needed to break the spell of containment, confinement. I needed to escape from that. I wanted to scream. And then I swear to God it happened this way. I am not making this up. My water broke. As I was standing there, naked in front of the mirror, warm liquid traveled down my legs and gathered in a pool at my feet two months early. I put on some sweats and called the doctor, left the kids with Nat. Thank God she was there, I thought, as I rushed out the door with Craig. My dear husband's face looked pinched. He avoided my gaze. He was frightened. Seven months can be enough, but not always. I knew what he was thinking. He was thinking, if we lose this baby, she won't survive. They cut me open and lifted him out of me. I looked down at the ruby-red gash in my abdomen, glistening like a fleshy flower, my legs warm, numbed, itchy from anesthesia. The doctor held the baby up. He was silent, moving faintly blue. He was handed away. Three masked doctors massaged him wordlessly under orange light. I asked to hold him. No one answered. They needed his flesh, trying to coax his reluctant spirit back through the threshold of the world where it hovered undecided. And then I heard the wail, fine as a silken thread floating through the air. I knew he would live, thrive. I knew this one was fine, just like I had known my healthy baby sister would die from the moment I held her in my arms, so I did not know it in thoughts. She lasted two months, a child without a destiny, 61 days stamped on her hand, Virginia. The baby had to stay in the hospital for a while, and so did I. Every night, Craig came to see us and told us how the boys were doing. Nat had shaved their heads. She said there was a head lice scare in school, but I doubted that. She had always wanted them shorn. Then there was church. She had taken them twice in one week. Craig said she even went out and bought them new Christian-looking clothes. <laughs> he laughed about it. She was living in the house. Of course she was. How else could Craig get to work by 7.30? I felt so peaceful once the baby was born. I felt like I would never plan a thing again. I was cocooned in the present, all alone with baby Adam. He had to be in an incubator the first couple of days when I wasn't breastfeeding him, but after that they let me keep him in my room. I just stared at his face for hours. The truth is I was a little nervous about going back to my real life. But finally the day came. We drove up to the house and I saw Kyle, my big boned boy, walking outside with the garden hose. He had a crew cut. He was wearing a red and white checked shirt tucked into his jeans. He looked like something out of Leave it to Beaver. Hey, I said. He ran to the car and looked at me shyly. He'd only been to the hospital to visit twice. He was getting used to life without me. As he peered through the back window to take a look at the baby, I wondered, if I died, how long would he remember my face, my voice? How long till he never dreamed about me anymore? The main thing I loved about being a mother was being indispensable. 
The front door opened and Nat stood in a maroon sweatsuit, her hand on Tyler's shoulder. I got out of the car and hugged both boys. I hate the baby, Tyler announced. Oh, now, said Nat. He's your brother. He's going to be your buddy. For now, he's just a baby. She reached in, cooing, and took Adam from the car seat and set him on her mammoth breast where he looked as small as a ferret. I felt a mixture of envy and relief. I was so tired. You go up and nap, said Nat as we walked into the sterilized kitchen. I'll bring him up when he starts rooting. I climbed the stairs, gratefully the incision in my belly burning. Craig followed me. It was so amazing to be able to just walk upstairs with no kids following us. Craig lay beside me and looked in my eyes. His blue-gray irises were magnified behind the round glasses. The thing about Craig is his parents were divorced when he was eight. Secretly, he lives in fear that one day he'll fall out of love with me and leave, and I'll turn into a bitter and unlovable woman like his mother. So I never know if his love is real or if it's just distilled guilt. But I knew at that moment he loved me then. Well, you did it again, he said. I'm a little scared. He's going to be fine. I'm glad Nat is here. Me too. How much are you paying her anyway? He shrugged. She's a present from my mother. That night at dinner, as we were tucking into Nat's famous lasagna and chopped salad, the baby sleeping peacefully in his bassinet, a fight erupted between Kyle and Tyler. Kyle was trying to steal a baby tomato from Tyler's plate. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's tomato, said Craig. I stood up to wash some more. Nat shut up fast, instead chuckling. My husband calls me Mrs. Covet, she said, washing the tomatoes in a sieve. Craig and I looked at her, surprised. I didn't know you were married, Nat, Craig said. Nat put her hand on her hip in mock outrage. What do you think? I was an old maid. He calls me Mrs. Covet because whenever he orders something in a restaurant, I change my order so as I can have what he's having because it always sounds so much better than what I ordered. Mrs. Covet, that's me. From that night, Craig and I started calling Nat Mrs. Covet when we were alone. Now that the baby was born, I felt a little clearer in my head. And my life was so easy with Nat in charge. She turned out to be the Mercedes of baby nurses. She kept the baby changed, bathed, and clean clothes. She gave him to me when he was about to be hungry. He was the most contented baby I had ever seen. I looked back on the other two and marveled that I'd been able to cope at all by myself. Since my sister Virginia died, I had been so scared that something would happen to my babies. Now with Nat here, I felt safe. She was a nurse. She would be able to handle any emergency. I started taking better care of myself, getting a manicure and a pedicure. I got my hair blown out. I looked fat around the middle, but healthy. No one could believe I had just given birth. Craig and I went out to dinner. We made love. I started feeling better about myself and even daydreamed about going to grad school one day. One morning I came upstairs and found that Nat had moved the baby's crib into her room. She said that that way, the minute he cried in the night, she could bring him into me. It would save me getting out of bed. I thought that was a little strange. I said, it's okay. I don't mind getting up. I like hearing him breathe next to me. She seemed a little put out by this, but she heaved and huffed the crib back into our room. After a few days had passed, she started saying I should think about weaning him. I had fed both the other boys myself for six months each, but Nat thought that was extravagant. They get everything they need in the first few weeks, and after that, it's just comfort. What's wrong with comfort, I asked. This one you're not going to spoil, she said. 
I thought that was an outrageous thing to say. We had a fight. She calmed me down by saying she had fallen in love with our family. She thought that I was a terrific mother and my kids were the best kids she's met aside from her own. That was the first I'd heard of her three children, two girls and a boy, grown now, moved away. And that was a dark horse. The next thing that happened was a sign, one I didn't read correctly. I was woken in the middle of the night by the sound of singing. At first it blended into my dream. Then I opened my eyes. Adam's crib was empty. I got up and went into the hallway. The singing was coming from Nat's room. I opened the door. She was lying in her bed, Adam beside her, sucking on her pinky. She blushed and muttered something about wanting to give me a few more minutes of sleep. I was furious. I took the baby back into my room, locked the door, and nursed him. The next morning, Craig thought I had overreacted. She wanted to give you a little sleep. He needs a feed in the night. I said, I am his mother. I don't mind doing it. It's normal. Daphne, he looked at me, his head cocked, a pleading look on his face. I kept the baby with me all the next day. Nat pretended nothing had happened, and she didn't try to take Adam from me. She busied herself with the other kids and cooked dinner, and then she put her coat on. We all looked at her, confused. She explained that she had to look in on her husband and tidy up her house. She would be back Monday. It was Thursday. I knew she was punishing me for what had happened the night before. Mrs. Covet was letting me know that she could live without my children. The question was, could we live without her? The long weekend was tough, as it turned out, but we made it. It was nice, just being the family again. We ordered in pizza, watched a movie, went out to breakfast. We were sloppy. The kids got into our bed on Sunday morning, and we had all three of them with us. It felt good. But when Nat appeared Monday morning, I was glad to see her. Happy to hand over the baby so I could bring the boys to school, come home, take a nap. When I got home, though, Nat's truck was gone. I walked into the house calling her name. I went into every single room. I went to the basement where the washing machine was. I went into the yard. My heart was racing. Tears stung my eyes. The first thing I thought of was she had to drive him to the hospital. He stopped breathing. That's what happened with Virginia. This is how it happened. My mother brought her home in a striped blanket, a tiny woolen hat on her head, eyes shut tight, mouth pursed, fists clenched. I was five. I wanted to hold her all the time. Sometimes my mother let me give her a bottle. I loved the way she looked up at me so earnestly, lips tugging at the rubber teat, tiny pools of milk gathering at the corners of her mouth. One afternoon, my mother put the baby down for her nap. I had my friend Tammy over, and we were pretending to be witches. We danced down the hall outside my mother's room, muttering incantations, casting spells. We spied the baby's crib and saw her little form huddled there under her striped blanket. I think I started it. I'm not sure, but I think I did. We said, we're going to take her away, take her away, take her away. We were whispering diabolically, giggling, falling over ourselves, two witches stealing the soul of an infant. Eventually we got bored and went into the kitchen for peanut butter sandwiches and milk. The next morning, when I woke up, the sky was still dark outside my window. I sat up and felt the cold air, took my sweater from the end of the bed and pulled it over my head. I tiptoed down the hall to my parents' room and peeked in the door. They were asleep. Virginia was in her crib, but I could see her body under the blanket. I couldn't make out her face, though. It felt strange to be up before the baby. It was always her cry that woke me. It felt lonesome. I walked into the kitchen. 
The linoleum was frigid beneath my bare feet. I thought how proud my mother would be if I made my own breakfast. I tried to pour myself a bowl of cereal and ended up scattering cornflakes all over the table. As I was opening the refrigerator on my toes, stretching my hand up to reach the milk, I heard my mother screaming. I ran down the hall, but my father blocked the door. Go to your room, he said. I went to my room and sat on my bed, held my pillow to my chest and prayed. I heard my mother crying out, I want my baby. I want my baby. I want my baby. Eventually, the ambulance came. During the funeral, I stared at my sister's tiny white casket, willing it to open, trying with all my might to force the lid to move even an inch. If I could kill her, perhaps I could make her live as well. But there was no magic in me that day. I never told anyone what I had done. The guilt settled into me like a leaf falling to the ground to be covered by other leaves and snow and earth. It melted into my being. Nat had taken Adam to the hospital. That had to be it. I called Craig. He called the hospital. She hadn't come in. We called Nat's cell phone. It was off. Craig picked up the kids and brought them home. I called the police. Night fell. My mind turned one thought over and over like a tumble dryer. Mrs. Covet stole my baby. I was up all night, though I must have drifted off at some point because I remember dreaming about ladybugs. They were crawling all over me. I woke up thinking about bad luck. On the TV, a documentary was playing in close-up and a rocky woman tears her hair. She's screaming, staring into the camera. Her eyes are almost white with fury. A blindfolded baby lies in a glass box. I don't understand. I tuned in late. The British commentator speaks so fast. Her baby got no medicine? Something terrible has happened to its eyes. Oh, Jesus Christ. In the desert, men in gas masks jump off a truck. They carry machine guns. They're on their way here. All those years, without knowing, we have reached our arms around the world, dug our thumbs into that baby's eyes. We have made him blind. And now that baby's mother wants to blind my children. She wants to slide into their beds while they sleep and breathe poison into their little pink mouths. They will wake swollen, incoherent, flailing, blind. It's my fault. Craig turned the TV off. I couldn't look him in the eye. It was his mother who had brought Mrs. Covet into our house, his mother who hated me. Craig knew what I was thinking. At dawn, the phone rang. They found her in Florida, picked her up at a convenience store buying pretzels. She was carrying the baby. Adam was all right. She didn't want to harm him. She just wanted him. That was all. We got on a plane with the kids and flew to Fort Lauderdale. They had the baby in the hospital there. We stayed in a hotel that night, me and Craig and the three boys. We watched the news. And there on the screen was Mrs. Covet with a serial number under her massive chin. She looked like a hardened criminal in that picture. Woman kidnaps month-old baby. She had no record. That's what the police said. She'd been a nurse for 20 years. A married woman with three grown children, and one day she just snapped. Fell in love with our family, like she said. All that time with us, she had yearnings. She was in pain. None of us noticed. We treated her like a joke. We didn't care what was going on inside her as long as she took care of us. Now she was in prison for kidnapping, all because she loved our baby too much. I felt bad in a way. Too much love had wrecked her life.
it is nearly light. The older children will be up soon. I cling to these moments before the day begins. I hear the baby's breathing changing. He will wake up soon. I feel the tingling pang of milk filling my breasts. The drip of it trickles down my abdomen. My third boy. He is still so new. His soft pink mouth opens, reaches out for my nipple. Eyes still shut. He roots around like a piglet. When he latches on and tastes the milk, his eyelids flutter. His eyes roll back in his head. Desire. Satiation. Desire. That's the story of his day. I am the warmth, the smell, the anchor. He is still nearly blind, innocent to meaning. He is like a pebble, a shell, a rabbit. He is no one. He is ancient. He has a face like a very old man, toothless mouth agape, staring both into and out of the void. I stay with him always. I am afraid. That was Mrs. Covet by Rebecca Miller, performed by Julianne Moore. The music was composed by Ivan Berthistle and Vincent Doherty. Sound supervision was by Richard McCulloch. Mrs. Covet was produced by Kevin Reynolds. And to listen back to Mrs. Covet and all editions of the Drama on One podcast, go to rte.ie forward slash drama on one. If you've been affected by the programme and you'd like to talk to someone, you can find information and links at rte.ie forward slash support. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.